Good evening. I don't know where Joseph is tonight, giving me Judges 11. He's not turned up, has he? <laughs> we'll see how we do with Judges 11. It's not, as, it's not as bad as it might first seem, I don't think. When John Chow uh, got on that boat to the Sentinel Islands uh, a month back, knowing that there was quite a good chance that when he got there, he'd end up with an arrow through his chest, what on earth was he thinking? Why did he go through with it? Why did he set off? Last year, when Tim Farron led the Liberal Democrats through quite a tough general election and sustained a barrage of abuse towards him for his own personal beliefs, and when he made it through the other side and stood with the leadership of the Liberal Democrats in his hands, why did he at that point decide, this is not the place for me, I'm stepping down? What drove him to give up that opportunity that he had. When Daniel and Amy MacArthur in Northern Ireland in 2014 were faced um, with a legal challenge that they'd not baked a cake with a certain message on that supported gay marriage, why did they decide we're going to fight this and we're going to take it to the courts even though it cost half a million pounds and a four-year-long legal battle? What drove them to do those things? What was motivating them? Why would they risk so much when things of, things of that nature could have been avoided so easily? Why, why were all these people willing to go through with these things? Well, surprisingly, we're going to find an answer in the story of Jephthah this evening. But before we get to chapter 11, I'd like to give a little bit of a background from chapter 10 and just explain what's going on. So throughout Judges so far, we've seen that the pattern of the book comes in these spirals. And it's not spirals upwards, unfortunately it spirals downwards. Israel fall into sin, uh, they receive judgment, normally through oppression by outside countries, uh, and that leads them sometimes to repent before God lifts them up out of it, only to fall back into the same cycle again. And in chapter 10, we're getting quite close to the very bottom of this cycle. Um, you can tell that partly because we're getting towards the end of the book and there's not many more judges left before we get to the conclusion. But you can also tell it partly by the way the author describes what's going on. So look at verse 6 of chapter 10. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and look how many idols he piles on that the, the Israelites are now serving. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreths, the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. Seven idols, seven uh, false idols that Israel are now worshipping. Seven in the Bible is a number of completeness or fullness. It carries a sense of almost that there was no religion that Israel weren't willing to try. They weren't, uh, there was no religion that Israel would say no to. Any nation around them, have you got a god we might like to have a go at? Yeah, well, let's worship it. Let's give ourselves to this idol. And the real sinfulness of their actions, the base of what they're doing, lies in the fact that they've turned away from the one true God. They've disobeyed the command of the holy God who'd rescued them. And yet for us, this idea of sin being the disobedience of God can, can often seem quite distant to us. And it can be difficult for us to share the same indignancy that God clearly has towards them for their sin in this, in this way. And yet if we want to get a sense of really how bad 
Israel was at this point, we need only to consider what it was like to serve these false idols. And so, for example, the gods of the Ashtoreth, to worship those gods, it was a, it was a religion of cult prostitution, amongst other things. Now, in that sort of society, what does marriage then look like? What does the family unit look like when your daily, weekly activity of worship is based on such things? Or you could consider the gods of Moab or the Baals. What does it look like to worship those gods? Well, again, amongst other things, this would include human sacrifice. Human sacrifice to worship this idol. In that sort of society, who defends the weak? Who defends the fatherless? Who defends the poor and the outcast? Who prevents them from being thrown onto the fire as the next offering? And so as you consider just what it entails for Israel to be worshipping these idols, even our 21st century minds can see that they'd fallen into being a society that was abhorrent, uh, unjust. They've gone so far from even our standards of morality, you can begin to understand how far they've gone from God's standard of morality. And so we can start to see why God hands them over then to those that they seek to emulate particularly the Ammonites and the Philistines in verse 7. God sold them into their hands. And look at the way the Ammonites then treat Israel, verse 8. Look at the verbs used. The Ammonites shatter Israel. The Ammonites crush Israel. The Ammonites oppress Israel. The Ammonites fight Israel. And after 18 long years have been shattered, crushed, oppressed and fought, Israel finally come to the senses and they cry out to God in verse 10. But what's God's response? God's response is, why should I save you? Why should I save you? God lists seven times that he's saved them already in history. Seven times that he's rescued them. Seven times that he's responded in this way. You've had your chances, God says. Ask these other gods to sustain you instead. Verse 14, go and cry out to the gods you've chosen. Let them save you when you're in trouble. It seems that that unconditional love of God that so many like to talk about doesn't find backing in the stories of Scripture. God's love is not unconditional as it's displayed here. And yet, we do find undeserved grace. Because as God says, now you've had your chances. Israel repent and verse 16, what happens then? God could bear Israel's misery no longer. His undeserved grace is poured out upon Israel. He sees them with compassion. He, he sees them with love. And he could bear their misery no longer. And so he begins to act. And we'll see what he does in chapter 11. And so we've got this pattern going on in, in chapter 10 of God is rejected. And so Israel are oppressed. Israel appeal, but then they're rebuked. And they repent. And finally God acts. Rejected, oppressed. Appeal, rebuked. 
repent, act. That's the pattern of the way Israel are treating God. And it'd be worth to bear that pattern in mind as we come to consider Jephthah. Because next onto the scene, chapter 11, we get this man, uh, Jephthah. And verse 1 to 3 gives the background for who Jephthah is. What's his situation? He was born into Gilead's family, we're told, verse 1. Uh, but there's a problem. And that is, he's the son of a prostitute. And so to the rest of his half-brothers, his half-claim to his father's inheritance is exactly that. Only half a claim. And they decide, we don't want this chap anywhere near when we're trying to get our hands on our father's estate. And so they kick him out. Clear off. Off we are. Go on. And they drive him out of the country. And the land of Tob is not even in Israel. It's in, a, it's in a different country. They drive him out. And while he's there, what happens to Jephthah? Verse 3. Jephthah fled from his brothers, settled in the land of Tob, where a group of adventurers gathered round him. That sounds fun, doesn't it? A group of adventurers. Sounds a bit like Robin Hood and his merry men. Okay, Here's Jephthah with his group of adventurers gathered round him. Uh, well, that's the word used in my... NIV. I think the new NIV adds a bit more strength to it, calls them scoundrels. If you look at other uh, translations, it'll call these men worthless fellows. Worthless fellows, rebels, some might say. Vain men, another translation puts it. Lawless men, needy men and robbers. We need not have the idea of Robin Hood and his merry men with him. This is Jephthah and a group of baddens. A group of wrongers, a group of outcasts, a group of thieves. That's where he's been driven to. And if you've been following the story through Judges, you're supposed to at this point be thinking, here we go again. Here we go all over again. Because this is the story of Abimelech in chapter 9. One of Gideon's sons. The son of one of Gideon's concubines. And he was driven out and he got a group of adventurers together. And what did he do? He came to get revenge. And he attacked the, the city in order to take it for himself. Only Abimelech didn't succeed in what he was trying to do. He was defeated. And behind him he left a, a trail of destruction upon both sides of the fight. And the story of Abimelech was a story of tragedy and failure. And so when you hear this start to Jephthah's life, you think, oh no, is this... Is this going to be the same all over again? Have we just got another Abimelech? But with Jephthah, his character is different. You see, after, after Gilead had rejected Jephthah, they kicked him out. Well, their rejection of him does lead to their oppression. But their oppression is not caused by Jephthah, as it had been with uh, Abimelech. Instead, the oppression of Gilead is caused by Jephthah's absence. They've kicked Jephthah out and the open door has allowed the Ammonites to come in. And now the Ammonites are attacking Gilead because there's no one to defend it. And they're weak. Rejection leads to oppression. So, Gilead appeals. Verse 6. Come on, Jephthah, they said. Come on, come back, please. Be our commander. We need someone to lead us to fight against the Ammonites. We need someone to protect us. And what does Jephthah say, verse 7? Look, I'm not stupid. I know what you're doing. You just want me back because you're weak and you've been defeated. You're not actually interested in having me back. You just want someone to fight your corner for you. 
I'm not daft. Gilead appeal, and their appeal is answered by a rebuke. And so Gilead have to sweeten the deal somewhat. Verse 8, they improve their offer. They say, well, nevertheless, we are turning to you now. Come with us to fight the Ammonites, and you will be our head over all who live in Gilead. If you come and fight, they say, you can be leader over us. We won't drive you away again. Instead of driving you out, we will welcome you with honour and respect. And so finally, Jephthah agrees. Their rejection of Jephthah led to their oppression. Their appeal is answered first by a rebuke. And after they repent, finally Jephthah is willing to act. Do you see what's going on? Do you see the parallel? The way that Gilead treat Jephthah mimics the way that Israel has treated God. And the Bible holds Jephthah up as an example because the way Jephthah responds to Gilead mimics the way God responds to Israel. Jephthah didn't use his band of followers to steal revenge back for himself. Instead, he waited. He allows himself to be exiled. He allows himself to be evicted from that land. He allows himself to be rejected. And he doesn't retaliate towards those that evict him. And in the end, it's for his vindication. And so in Jephthah, we see, well, two ways in which he serves as an example for us. The first way is he serves as an example of Christ himself. Jephthah becomes the saviour that God raised up and yet he's rejected by the very people that he's intending to save. You see, in Christ, we have the saviour that God has raised up, that God has given. And yet Christ was rejected by the very people that he came to save. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. But for Jesus, it wasn't just a rejection into exile. It was a rejection even unto death. And so Peter at Pentecost has to plead with the Jews and say, look, let all Israel be assured of this. God made this Jesus, who you crucified, Lord and Christ. You have rejected him, but now you need to turn and accept him because he is your saviour. And so Jephthah becomes an example or a type, as it were, of the way Christ would come and be rejected by those he came to save. But also we have in Jephthah an example for Christians to follow. Jephthah is an example for Christians to follow. I bet you weren't expecting those words as he turned up this evening, if you know anything about the story of Jephthah. Jephthah is an example for Christians to follow. Jephthah is treated no differently from the God that he serves. The pattern of the way he is treated mimics the way Israel treat God. Just as God was rejected, so Jephthah is rejected. Just as Christ was rejected, so Christians must be ready to endure the same rejection. And so Jesus speaks to his disciples and warns them and says, look, no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, Jesus says, they will persecute you. 
That stands true for those first disciples of Jesus. And it stands true for disciples of Jesus today. That is, Christians. If they persecuted him, they will persecute you. Now, for us in the UK, it's highly unlikely that the persecution we face will be to the point of death, as Jesus suffered. Instead, as we were thinking about this morning, it's more likely that, okay, you won't lose your life, but you might lose your respectability. You might lose your street cred. You might be labelled a fanatic or a fool. You might be mocked. You could end up being the butt of the joke. If if you're going to be a follower of Christ, you need to be ready to face this sort of rejection. But it's not just prejudice that Jesus says we'll face. He doesn't say, just as they're prejudiced against me, so they will be prejudiced against you. No, he says, they will persecute you. And so for some, this rejection will go further than just mocking and derision. For some, you might begin to lose what you have. Perhaps, and likely in this country, your job, for example. And so in the UK, already we've seen that people who work in airports, or people who work as bakers, or people who work as politicians, or people who work as teachers, or people who work as foster carers, or people who work as registrars. In the UK, this tolerant country, Christians who work in those roles already have been forced out or fired from their jobs because of the beliefs they hold. Is that a cost that you'd be willing to take if you found yourself in that situation? Would you be willing to lose your job, and perhaps not just your job, but your profession? You don't just lose your job at this university, but you're kicked out of academia. You don't just lose your job at that school, but you're banned from being a teacher. Would you be willing to face that in order to be an obedient disciple of Christ? No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And so Jephthah provides us with this example of enduring the same rejection as the God that we serve. But why? Why is Jephthah willing to submit to his rejection in this way. Why doesn't he fight back? Why doesn't he use his adventurers to go and steal back what he thinks he might deserve? Well, to understand his motives behind the way he acts, we need to take a closer look at the the, the letter and his response, uh, and where he fleshes out some of the reasoning behind the ways he acts, and it gives us a little glimpse into, actually, his theology behind his thinking. And so the letter starts in... Um, well, the, the, the discourse starts from verse 12. Jephthah sent messengers to the Ammonite king. Remember, the Ammonites are the ones who are now coming to oppress Gilead, this portion of Israel. So the Ammonites are coming to oppress, and Jephthah sa- sends a letter to the king of the Ammonites, and he says, what's your problem? And the Ammonite answer comes back, verse 13, when Israel came up out of Egypt, they took away my land... From the Arnon, that's a river, to the Jabbok, that's a river further north, all the way to the Jordan, that's a river in the west. Now give it back peaceably. The Ammonite says, you've got my land. Fair comment. 
But Jephthah says, hang on, you've got your history wrong. And so Jephthah's response is, look, I'll tell you what really happened. When Israel came up out of Egypt, I'm trying to go the right direction here. I think they come this way, okay? When Israel came up out of Egypt, they're heading towards the promised land. And they get to Edom. And Edom's in this section here. And Jephthah says, look, they wanted to go through Edom, but the Edomites wouldn't let them. So they started to go round. And then they came to Moab. And they said to the king of Moab, can we come through your land? We want to get through to, our, to the place that God has given us. And the king of Moab says, no, you're not coming through. And so they went up and then they went round and they went to the place of the Amorites. This is the place that sounds like Ammonites, but it's different. They went to the Amorites, okay? And they said to the king of the Amorites, will you let us through? This is Sihon. And the king of the Amorites, instead of just saying no, he came out to fight them. Okay. And because he came out to fight them, of course, Israel fought back. And who won the battle? Well, Israel. And so Israel go into the land and they take off this little portion, which is my thumb. And this is Gilead now. And so Jephthah's argument is this. Firstly, it's not Ammonite land that we're living on. It, previously, it was Amorite land. So, king of the Amorites, you've not got a claim to it. Secondly, all this happened 300 years ago, Jephthah says. Why are you just coming to us now to ask us about it? What's been going on all these 300 years? Why can't you let the dust settle? And thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, Jephthah says, look, this isn't just a game of empires. This isn't a local game of kings and queens and uh, capture the flag and that sort of thing. This land was given to us by God. Verse 21, he says, God is the one who gave it to us. Verse 23, it reiterates, look, if God's the one who gave it to us, you've got no right to take it. Verse 24 says, look, our God gave us this land. What's your God given you? Verse 27, he says, let the Lord, let the judge decide who this land really belongs to. Now, at first reading, it might seem like uh, a a bit of open-ended fatalism, that last comment. Okay, then, we'll go to war, and whoever wins gets the land. But that's not really what Jephthah's doing. It's more like, imagine a situation where there's two men arguing over a piece of land. And one person says, this is my land. And the other one says, no, it belongs to me. And the first one says, I've got an idea. Let's ask the guard dog who it belongs to. Of course, the guard dog belongs to the first man. And so by saying, let's ask the guard dog who it belongs to, he's not saying, oh, we'll just well, see who the dog thinks. You know, he's, he's posing a challenge. He's saying, this is mine, and it'll be proven, because it will be defended for our cause. And so Jephthah presents to the Ammonites, he says, look, the reason you're not having this land is because it's promised land. This is the land that God had promised to give to his people. And so it's not there for the taking. No matter how poorly defended it currently is, it's not there for the taking. Or in Jephthah's case, no matter what sort of grievance you've got against the people who live there, it's not there for the taking. It's God's land to give. And that explains a little bit of why Jephthah doesn't attack and take it for himself. And it's also why he's confident that the king of Ammon won't be able to take it either. 
Now, I'm using Hebrews 11 to help, um, help interpret what's going on here with Jephthah. And Hebrews 11 tells me that Jephthah has got faith in the promises of God. Jephthah has got faith that God had promised this land to his people. And so we have a picture then of what Jephthah's doing. Jephthah endures the same rejection as the God that he serves. That's the bit that we thought about first. He endures the same rejection as the God he serves. Why? Because of his faith in the promises that God has given. Christians are to endure the same rejection as the Christ that we serve. Why? Because of our faith in the promises that Christ has given us. What are those promises that Christ has given us? There are many. And you could talk about them over your cup of tea tonight. And it would put you to bed in a real glowing mood, I assure you. But here are some. That Christ will come again to judge the world. That when he comes to judge the world, forgiveness will be granted to all those who are trusting in him. That after he judges the earth, the earth will be renewed. That sin will be done away with. That death and pain and mourning will be done away with. That all things will be made good and new. And that all authority and rule and all the glory and honour that Jesus has will be shared with his people. All the authority and rule that Jesus has, all the glory and honour that he enjoys, will be shared with his people. We will reign with him. We become co-heirs with him. All the glory and honour that we could ever want is ours in Christ Jesus when he returns. And if we've got that promise in mind, That's going to affect how we respond tomorrow at the office. When someone asks us what what we've done at the weekend or what we're planning to do at Christmas, and we've got the option to back out of mentioning anything to do with our Christian faith, we could grasp for those fleeting moments of acceptance by the world. Or instead, we could remember the promise that Christ has given us, that all glory and all honour will be shared by us with him and stand with Jesus and perhaps endure a small part of the rejection that Christ had to suffer. A very small part. But we endure that rejection with him knowing that there's a greater honour for his people to come. Or what about when things get worse than just mocking and derision and injustice comes and people are kicked out of those jobs and professions that they've worked so hard for so many years to achieve? Are we going to be ready to face that cost? Knowing that there's promise of greater gain in the future? Or for those Christians that come here, or for those people who come to the UK who become Christians in this church, who are then sent back to countries where Christianity is not tolerated. China, for example, where churches have been systematically shut down. Are we teaching them that there is a greater honour than even the honour that the Chinese government could ever give you? There is a greater honour 
for those who are willing to be persecuted as Jesus was, was persecuted. Now, it'd be tempting to close the sermon here because this is, I think, the main lesson that we get from Jephthah. Do we endure the same rejection as God because of the faith in the promises that God has given? But if I did stop here, I'd be ignoring the elephant in our room, wouldn't I? Because what, is, what on earth is going on with these verses at the end of the chapter? And so, as a little bit of an addendum to my main message, I want to just spend some time thinking about what's happening at the end of this chapter. Uh, this foolish vow that Jephthah makes, uh, offering to sacrifice his daughter and then seemingly going through with it. Why would he do that? What really happened? And what on earth are we supposed to learn from it? Well, what actually happens in verse 30? Uh, you can see Jephthah there makes a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return, um, when I return in triumph from the Ammonites, will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. His vow is, whatever comes out to meet me will be sacrificed as a burnt offering to the Lord. Now you've got to ask at this point, what what on earth was he expecting to come out at him? Did he have some pet dogs or something that he wouldn't have mind getting rid of? You know, it, It's not beyond the text. Okay, So the text does say whatever or whoever. Uh, the, the text is ambiguous. Whatever comes out to meet me. Potentially it could have been an animal. But to be honest, it's unlikely that he was expecting an animal. He probably is expecting a human, a person, to come out to meet him. And the tragedy in the story, the way, the way his response is written, he doesn't seem to be so concerned that this is a human that I'm sacrificing. His concern seems to be that this is my daughter that I'm sacrificing. And so Jephthah, for, for some reason, has become so acquainted with human sacrifice that he's willing to offer it to the, to the Lord as an offering to him. Now, the only way that I can see Jephthah coming to this sort of conclusion is taking a clue from what was happening in chapter 10. When the whole of Israel has become so alloyed, so mixed in, so lacking distinction from the cultures of the world around them, that they've taken on all the religious practices that they see in those other nations. And they're using them in their own ways of serving the Lord. And so Jephthah, and remember Jephthah, okay, in his letter he seems to have a strong view of of God's sovereignty and a a strong faith in God's promises for Israel. And yet, remember as well that he's this exiled, uh, uh, rejected man with a band of robbers around him. He's hardly a a priest, is he? You know, he's he's not a Pharisee. He's, He's questionable in many of his ways. And so he, as well, drinks in the the ways of the nations around him. And it seems to him that it's acceptable to offer a human as a sacrifice to the Lord. Now, I would just like to say at this point that the, the, the law that they did have, the Bible expressly prohibits any human sacrifice. And even there are laws within Leviticus that say, if you end up making a vow that somehow leads to the offering of a human uh, as a sacrifice, 
there are ways that you can get out of that. There are ways that that vow can be, can be honoured in a different way than actually offering the human as a sacrifice. In no way must you offer a human life as a sacrifice to the Lord. And Jephthah, because of his perhaps lack of education or lack of understanding or because of Israel's wholesale rejection of God, clearly this message doesn't get through to him. And it seems like, in the end, Jephthah goes through with it. He does exactly as he uh, intended to. And so what should have become a victory for Jephthah actually becomes a tragedy. After the letter and the discourse between Jephthah and the king of Ammon, that all stops in verse 28. And from 29 down to 40, that's all about what happens afterwards, after that discourse. And only two verses out of those 12, only two verses deal with Jephthah attacking and defeating the Ammonites. It's as if the narrator's saying, look, we had this great opportunity for victory and it was marred in such a tragic way. And actually, this fits with the pattern of judges. So there are, you could see that there are six main judges, perhaps, in the book of Judges. You've got Othniel, Ehud, and Deborah, the first three. And then the, the second three are Gideon, uh, Jephthah, and Samson. Now, those first three judges, when they secure victory against the enemy, it's exactly that, a, a clean victory, as it were. And then Israel goes on to have peace. Those second three, whenever they secure victory against the enemy, they fall into a tragedy. And so Gideon, the tragedy is, well, eventually Abimelech. But that comes from his worship of the ephod that he makes. For Jephthah, his uh, tragedy is the sacrifice of his daughter. For Samson, the tragedy is his own death. And so you see this this, uh, degrading through the book of Judges. It adds to this idea of, actually, we're going in downward spirals. Even the victory that we're getting is not really so much a victory anymore. It's still a falling downwards. And, And that's enhanced as well as we go from Gideon through to Samson. Gideon, the tragedy comes a few years after the victory. Gideon lives and it's towards the end of his life and his death that that Israel falls into sin. For Jephthah, he secures the victory and then, two months, then his daughter's sacrificed. For Samson, the tragedy is the very means of victory. The victory and the tragedy are one on top of the other. And so the narrator seems to be showing us in this little section that, look, Jephthah might have been a man of great faith, it might have been a man who rescued Gilead from a strong threat from outside. And yet, he's not the saviour we need. Even the victory he brings is marred with tragedy and death and sin. And finally, if we look at this section with our New Testament goggles on, how can we fail to see a picture, a glimpse, a glimmer of Christ. The only child is sacrificed as victory is secured for God's people. That's what's going on in this section. The only child is sacrificed as victory is secured for God's people. How could he avoid seeing the parallels between the sacrifice of the only Son of God in order to secure salvation for God's people? And yet, 
don't go away thinking that actually this is a prime example for us. Let's, let's start studying this example to see more of who Jesus is. No. There's a reason that if we want to go to the Old Testament and look for a, a sacrifice that foreshadows Christ, we might first go to the sacrifice of Isaac by Abraham. And, and that's a positive example. Firstly, because God commands it. It's not done by a foolish vow. And secondly, because the sacrifice doesn't actually go through. Because the sacrifice of a sinful man can never take away the sin of another. And so, we have examples in the Old Testament of good, um, uh, yeah, good examples of, of the way Christ's sacrifice is pictured. And this example is, well, perhaps we can see a glimmer, but it's not a true picture. It's not really explaining to us what's going on. It's not picturing it for us. We have to leave this passage realising that Jephthah was a saviour, but he's not the saviour we need. The one saviour we need is the one whose sacrifice is sufficient. The one who is offered as a sacrifice of atonement for our sin. And that is Jesus Christ himself.